We are in week four of a five-week series that we've been doing on Isaiah 52, verse 13 through chapter 53, a series we are calling The Suffering Servant, an in-depth look at Christ and the cross. And tonight, let's read down through the fourth stanza. You know, I have felt for a long time that one of the best things that we can do as Christians is to spend time frequently at the foot of the cross. It is a great thing for us as believers to frequently spend time considering, remembering, contemplating, and meditating upon the sacrifice of Christ. To think about that it was our sin, that it was my sin that He hung on the cross for. To think about what the cross accomplished for us. That it created a way for us who were enemies, who were separated from God, to be at peace with God. It created a way for all of us who were enemies to become sons and daughters. It is a great thing, it's an important thing, that we as believers take time to consider Calvary. And also, not just what the cross did for us, but what the cross modeled for us. In John chapter 15, Jesus said in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And greater love has no man than this, than he lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Jesus on the cross modeled for us a life of self-sacrificing love. The idea or, or, or the life of, of laying down our lives to better someone else, to help someone else. That's what Christianity, that's really the, the true mark of Christianity. The true mark that we are becoming like Christ is when we come to that place where we are willing to lay down our lives for someone else, to better someone else, to help someone else. That's the whole crux and the whole key to Christian marriage for both the husband and the wife is to to take that attitude and that heart of Jesus and seeking to lay down our lives for each other. To lay down our selfish desires that our spouse might be blessed and pleased and and lifted up. It's the whole key to Christian friendships in the body of Christ. Let this mind be in you, Paul said, that was also in Christ Jesus. And so it's a great thing for us as we come together and we contemplate and we remember and we study Calvary, not just what the cross means for us, what Jesus did for us, but but also what it means in the aspect of what he modeled for us. We can't spend too much time looking at the suffering Savior, looking at our servant King Jesus. And that's why we have been taking our time to camp out here in Isaiah chapter 53. It's a passage that I've told you is called the Mount Everest of the Old Testament because it has awesome views of Jesus. 
awesome views of what he went through in that six-hour period on the cross at Calvary. And what Isaiah writes here, as we've seen, is in great detail in speaking about how he would be uh, brutalized and how he would be killed. And yet it was written 700 years before Christ was born and 300 years before crucifixion was even invented. And so we've been looking at Jesus and his sacrifice to us, given here in great detail. And we've noted that in in this message, there are five stanzas or five sections. And stanza number one, chapter 52, verse 13 through verse 15, we saw the servant exalted. The Lord says there, behold my servant. And that word behold means to look at, to gaze upon, to study, and to be in awe of. God himself is telling us, take some time and look at this. Be captured by this. Let your heart be moved by this. And these verses lay out in these first three verses, in the first stanza of the message, we have the death, resurrection, and second coming of Christ laid out for us. It's the life of Christ uh, capsulated for us in these three short verses. And then stanza number two, chapter 53, verses one through three, we saw the servant humbled. We talked about there his beginnings, his character, how he came in humility as a a tender plant and he came concealing his glory and that there was nothing about him outwardly that people would desire him or be drawn to him, but he was despised and rejected of men. It was a picture there of his humility. And then we came to stanza number three, verses four through six last time, where the servant, we saw the servant as our substitute. Where we're told there that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was bruised for our iniquities, that the chastisement for our peace was upon him, that he took our place, that he took our sin in order to give us his life and his righteousness. And tonight we come to stanza number four in chapter 53, verses seven through nine, where we see the servant silence. Let's read again verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, first of all, we should not take this to be an indication that Jesus was a helpless victim of, of circumstances in his death. Don't take this to me that he was this helpless little lamb that, that the people just grabbed a hold of and he, and he had you know, no control or they just overtook him in this. Quite the contrary. No, what the Bible teaches us is that even in his suffering, even in his death, Jesus was in full control. I love the scene in John chapter 19 where Pilate is trying to uh, get Jesus to defend himself against the accusations that are coming against him. And it's the second time Jesus is brought before Pilate. And Pilate, you know, his heart's being stirred. He's conflicted in all of this. And he's, he's just looking for something out of Jesus that he might be able to just say, look, I, you know, I'm going to let you go. And, and it says there in verse 10, then Pilate said to him, are, are you not speaking to me? 
Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it was given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate was shaken by this. He was stirred by this. In fact, in verse 12 there of of John 19, it tells us that from that point on, Pilate sought to release him. He was like, I've got to find a way to release him. Pilate's an interesting study. He's, He's definitely conflicted in this whole thing as he's looking at Jesus, as he's hearing these things, and and his wife comes and warns him and says, have nothing to do with this man. I suffered many things from him in a dream last night. So I have nothing to do with this guy. Just don't take part in this. And and Pilate was moved by the way that Jesus handled himself with such strength and dignity. Even in the midst of being beaten and bloodied and his beard plucked out, Jesus stood there in dignity and grace that led Pilate to say, I find no fault in this man. There's nothing that we can accuse this guy of. And he he even made a sign. Behold, the king of the Jews. But Pilate is also a great case study in the person who chooses popular opinion over choosing Christ. The person who gives in to wanting to be liked by the crowd more than he wants to be right with God. He's a great case study of one who was more concerned about standing before his constituents than he was about standing before God. I mean, it's interesting, the thing about Pilate is that he ended up losing his position not long after this. And we're really not sure historically what happened to him. So a lot of different opinions. There's one that says that he actually went out and committed suicide. And some suggest that it was over the grief of what, what happened to Jesus and his, his part in it. Others think it was because he lost his position. But there's another story that has circulated through history that he actually became a Christian. He actually became a follower of Christ and was martyred for his faith. Man, I hope that second one is true. I mean, wouldn't that just be an awesome end of the story of this guy's life if we find Pilate in heaven? I mean, that would be absolutely incredible and so much like the Lord. Jesus was silent in his suffering in the sense that he was submitted to the Father's plan. It doesn't mean that he he didn't cry out at the beating. He was human. He felt the pain No, it means that he was silent in the sense that he didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to cast blame on others. And there was no reason for him to make excuses. He was completely innocent. But that was the normal reaction of the criminals of that day. That they would, I'm innocent. This isn't fair. Oh, why is this happening? And they would beat the criminals in hopes of getting a confession out of them so that they would implicate others. Jesus was silent. Guys, there's something there when you think about that he could have implicated us. It's amazing when you read John chapter 18 and 19 of the account of the trial and the crucifixion because interlaced through it is the story of Peter's denial. 
And I find that so ironic because here's Jesus, you know, being beaten and they're trying to get this confession out of him. They're trying to implicate him and he's just being silent. I mean, there's a couple times in there where, you know, they say, are you a king? And he says, you know, it's as you say. And he does say a a few things in the midst of all of that, but he doesn't do what the normal criminal would do at all. And in the midst of all that, there's, here's Peter, Jesus standing dignified, standing strong, and Peter is denying him three times. Such a picture of God's grace to the very end. The soldiers mocked him. They beat him, and yet in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, we're told, he was reviled, and he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He didn't make threats, and I want you to think about what he could have done, what he could have said. He could have threatened big time. He could have cast judgment big time. He could have called down a legion of angels. He could have blinked and all of them would have been zapped. He could have done that. They reviled him. Think about that. God in the flesh. Mocking, beating, spitting upon, reviling, and he doesn't revile back. Guys, that's meekness in action. You know, some people think that meekness is weakness. In reality, the word meekness is power under control. That was Jesus. He was in full control there on the cross, there in his trial. Now, I ask you this question. How do you handle your power and your authority? Guys, husbands at home, how do you handle your power and your authority with your wife, with your kids? What about at work? The people that you work with, the people that are under you, how do you handle your power and your authority in a friendship? Listen, being Christ-like in our sphere of influence is being willing to lay down our, our authority in order to help others and to serve others. Meekness, power under control. His silence was a display of his weakness. And think about that the next time that you're tempted to lash out. Let's continue on. Verse 8. It says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? The idea here is that he stood alone. No one stood with him. No one stood for him. Continues, For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. This is a picture of the sin offering because when the sin offering in the Old Testament was given, part of it was put upon the altar and burned up for the Lord. It's a sweet-smelling aroma, a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. But the other part of it was taken outside of the camp and it was burned, totally consumed. And this is the idea here of Jesus being taken outside of the city and offered up. And this is really the first indication in the story, in the message that the suffering servant of the Lord, the Messiah himself, would die. Up to this point, we might have thought that he would have just been severely beaten, but there's no mistake in it at this point when it says that he was to be cut off from the land of the living. The suffering, the attack was meant to end in death. 
In verse 9 it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus died in the company of the wicked. He was crucified between two thieves. I love the story of a preacher who was dying. He was old. He was sick. He was on his deathbed and he called for two people who came to his church at times. One was a lawyer and the other was a doctor and both of them were known for not being very honest guys. And he called and says, I, 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 tell these, I want these guys to be here. And they were kind of bewildered. They were kind of, you know, touched, but at the same time, kind of like, what in the world's going on? And they came into the room, and they, one guy goes on one side of the bed, the other guy's on the other side of the bed, and they're kind of standing there, and the preacher doesn't say anything. He's just laying there as these two guys are, you know, there next to him, and the doctor and lawyer kind of looking at each other and just kind of like, you know, what do we do, and why are we here? And finally, one of them got the courage uh, to say, You know, Pastor, why did you send for us? And we've never really got the idea that you liked us that much. And and, and the pastor responded by saying, well, my Lord died between two thieves, and I want to as well. (laughs) He died between two thieves. He was put to death with the wicked. And it was the intention of those supervising his execution to cast him into just the common grave with the wicked. But as we talked about on Sunday, Joseph of Arimathea stepped forward and asked for the body. He asked for the body of Jesus. That he wanted to take the body of Christ and he wanted to bury it in his own personal tomb. And at that same time, one of the other religious leaders, the teacher in Israel, we're told in John chapter 3, Nicodemus also stepped forward to take part in this. These two guys were secret followers of Christ who came forth at this time. Now, Joseph is mentioned, Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels. And we're told in the Gospels this about him, that he was a just man, that he was a man seeking the kingdom of God, that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, that he didn't agree with the Sanhedrin's decision to crucify Christ. And in Mark chapter 15, verse 43, he is referred to as an honorable council member. Now, this is interesting because Josephus, the Jewish historian, notes that in the entire history of the Sanhedrin, only 14 people were given that title. So Joseph of Arimathea was a respected guy. He was a guy who who really did have a heart for God. And I think that was one of the reasons why he was drawn to Jesus, because he saw something in Jesus, the Messiah, that was God-like, that just was, that drew him in. But he stayed secret. He's kind of stayed in the closet. The Bible also tells us in the Gospel of Matthew that he was a really rich man. Arimathea was a beautiful countryside uh, outside of the city of Jerusalem. But we're told that Joseph purchased a burial spot inside of Jerusalem. A beautiful garden area where he was going to have a tomb constructed for his entire family. Now, it was normal for a rich man to buy a cave in order to bury his family. That was kind of a normal thing that someone that was rich would do. 
But a very rich man, somebody who was really, really well off, would have a tomb made. He'd have it carved out of the rock. And that's exactly what Joseph of Arimathea did. In fact, if you go to Israel today, if we ever take a trip again and you come with us, we go to the garden tomb. And it's it's a beautiful garden. And inside this garden is a tomb that was hand-carved out of solid rock that was big enough for an entire family to fit inside. Several people could have been laid inside of this tomb. But what's interesting is years later, when British scientists did some research on the tomb, they noticed some interesting things. The tomb, first of all, was never completed. What I mean by that is that there was only one burial spot that had been carved out, one slab to lay a body. There wasn't several, only one. And there were no signs whatsoever of any decomposition in that tomb. The tomb looks as if it had never been used, which, as again, I said on Sunday, is so unusual when you consider the expense that it would have cost to have this tomb hand-carved out. And the reason for that is because that tomb was only used for three days. It was only borrowed by the Son of God. But I want you to think about this. Imagine Joseph of Arimathea thinking about Isaiah 53, 9, where it says that he made his death with the wicked, but his grave with the rich. Imagine him thinking, that was written about me. That was written about me. I'm the rich man providing the grave for the Messiah. Imagine him determining that I would rather be a part of prophecy than a part of the Sanhedrin, because he probably, in in becoming out as a follower of Christ, would lose his position. Imagine, if you would, these two wealthy men climbing up the ladder to the cross and prying with a pry bar out the nails that were in his hands, that were in his feet. Rich men didn't do that kind of thing. They had people that did that type of thing for them. Picture these two men in your mind with the pry bar, taking out the nails, getting bloody themselves. Picture them carrying his lifeless body about 150 yards, one and a half football fields, a limp, lifeless body of of probably a man that weighed somewhere between 160 to 190 pounds. And them carrying that lifeless body to the tomb. And then beginning to prepare it for burial. Washing the wounds. Scrubbing out the wounds. Bathing the body. Pulling out the thorns out, out of his head. What an honor. What an honor. And I'm sure as they did that, they did it with tears and tenderness. Tears coming down their face. Tenderness in their hearts. Imagine Nicodemus lugging through the streets of Jerusalem. Because it says he bought all the spices. A hundred pounds worth. 
and lugging that through the streets, these spices and fragrant herbs, and someone stopping him and saying, Nicodemus, where are you going with all those you know, fragrant herbs and spices? And he responds to a burial and someone commenting, that's enough herbs and spices for a king. Exactly, he would say. Exactly. A king. The king of the Jews. But my king, our king. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus risked a lot to align themselves with Jesus. And it's really too bad that they waited so long. Because they missed out on a lot. But you know what? Better late than never. If you're here tonight and you've never given your life to Christ... And maybe you're older, you know, now in life. You've missed out on a lot, but better late than never. It's never too late to start. But think about this. It was the cross. It was this event that moved these two. And I wish we had. I I just can't wait to get to heaven and, and see the dialogue that, that went on between them and when it was exactly during that whole trial and beating and through that whole process when they, they saw and they knew where this was headed and where it was going, that when you know, they got together and said, you know what, Joseph's saying, you know what, I want to take the body, I want to put it in my tomb. And Nicodemus saying, I'll get the spices, I, I want to see that. I want to see that. But it was the cross that moved these men to come out in the open and to express their allegiance to Christ. And that's what the cross does. I was thinking today about our risk living here in the U.S. and being a Christian. It isn't so great. Oh, we might get ridiculed. We might get left out of some invitations to some things that we probably have no business going to anyway. And yet so many are so reluctant to stand for Christ, to name the name of Christ. A lot of people today, they want to just kind of blend in. They want to be secret agent, you know, Christians. And, and this is a time, folks, that we need to stand. He was silent so that we could now shout. He was silent in and, and, and his death so that we could now proclaim the good news. Now before we approach the table tonight, I want us to consider one more thing. One more thing about Isaiah 52 and 53 because You know, there's a remarkable parallel between the five stanzas of Isaiah 52 and 53 and the five offerings in the book of Leviticus. In the first chapter of the book of Leviticus, Moses describes the burnt offering. In chapter 2, he describes the meal offering. In chapter 3, the peace offering. In chapter 4, the sin offering. And in chapters 5 and 6, the trespass offering. Now, the burnt offering was an offering that was fully consumed on the altar. 
It's an offering which presents the ministry of our Lord because all of these offerings were pictures of Jesus. The burnt offering was the offering that pictured or presented the ministry of our Lord uh, typically as one who gives himself wholeheartedly to do the will of God. That he was consumed with doing the Father's will. And he lived a completely obedient life. And we have that before us in the first stanza when when the Lord says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. And the idea there is he shall accomplish the purpose from which he came. He shall carry out the will of God and the work of God in his death and his resurrection and his ascension and in his life and the way that he lived. Beautifully pictured there. In the burnt offering. The second offering was the meal offering. That was the offering of fellowship. In this offering, the part of the offering would be given to the Lord. Part of it would be given to the priest. And part of it would be given to the worshiper. And after it was offered up, they would literally have a meal together. They would have a a feast together. It was a time of, of celebration. It was a time of fellowship, which means to share in common. Sharing in common their love for God. Sharing in common the fact that the sacrifice had cleansed them. Sharing in common the fact that they had been covered by the heart of God. But the grain offering was made of this fine flour, which also was a beautiful picture of the perfect humanity and character of Jesus Christ, which again is presented to us so perfectly in the second stanza. Our Lord's humility and His tenderness and His humanness as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief is presented for us there in the second stanza, chapter 53, verses 1 through 3. And it speaks there of His ability to understand our struggles and and that He was touched by our struggles, that He shares in the fellowship with us of suffering. And then the third offering was the peace offering. And it was the offering that the priest brought which was designed to represent an atonement that issues peace between the worshiper and God. And again, in the third stanza, in verses 4 through 6, Jesus is presented as the substitute. And we are told in that section that the chastisement for our peace was laid upon Him. And then in the fourth offering was the sin offering. And the sin offering was the offering which transgression of, uh, of Israel was covered when a man sinned and he brought the sin offering. And part of that offering was taken and burnt on the altar as a sweet aroma to God. But the majority of the animal was taken outside of the camp where it was burned there and totally consumed and it was a token of judgment. And here tonight we've seen in this fourth stanza that Jesus was taken outside of the city of Jerusalem, outside of the gates, and crucified there upon Golgotha. And it was as if they were saying to everyone that we don't think this Jesus of Nazareth even belongs in the fellowship of Israel. And so they slew him outside of the city. And that's depicted in verse 8 of this fourth stanza. And then finally, the final offering was the trespass offering. Trespass, it means rebellion. It speaks of willful disobedience. 
not just of sin, not just of failure, not just of slip-ups, but, but willful. I know this is wrong, and I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. And we read here in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin... And the word used there to describe that phrase, an offering for sin in the Hebrew is a sham. And, and, and that's the very word that is used of the, tres, of the trespass offering. The sham. Same word that is used. And so what the offerings were meant to represent was depicted. It was meant to describe what Jesus would go through what this lays out here in Isaiah 52 and, and 53 that he was that he offered himself wholly to God, the burnt offering. And tonight we need to offer ourselves fully to God. We need to follow in his example. That he was, secondly, the perfect man, which qualified him to be the final sacrifice. The meal offering, and that reminds us that he is our high priest who can sympathize with our, our weaknesses. Because he was a man acquainted with sorrows. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He, he walked in our shoes. And the third offering, he provides peace through his sacrifice. The peace offering. And, and tonight we need to, to celebrate as we come before the table of communion that we tonight are at peace with God. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our peace offering. But not only that, but because his sacrifice, we also can experience the peace of God in our lives. Because we know because of that sacrifice that he loves us, that he's for us, that he is behind us. That any care or need that we might have tonight is found and met in our Savior. And number four, he dies for sin. For the failures of man, the sin offering. And tonight we can rejoice and we can celebrate that our sins, our failures are covered. But number five, the trespass offering, he also died for our rebellion. He died for every slip up. But also for every single time that you in your heart said, God, I know this is wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to spit in your face right now, but... And he died for that. His death covers that. So that you and I, who were his enemies, could now be his friends. I just love how the Bible lays out this scarlet thread throughout the, all, all of the Word, just from one end of it to, to, the, to the other that just points us to, keeps bringing us back to the suffering Servant, our suffering Savior, who did all of that so that you and I could sit here tonight covered in His righteousness. Let's rejoice in that tonight as we partake of communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You, Lord, that your son bore our grief, took our pain, our punishment. We thank you, God, that he was silent, but in full control. 
Lord, that he exercised on Calvary incredible meekness in order to save us. And Lord, tonight, you call us to love as you have loved us. And so, Lord, we tonight, we come once again humbly to surrender our hearts before you. And Lord, maybe for some of us in our homes, in a friendship, in a workplace, we've misused power and authority. Lord, we ask you to forgive us tonight and show us, Lord, how to, how to move in, in that sphere of influence like Jesus. To live lives that exemplify a self-sacrificing kind of life. A life willing to lay down our lives for others. Be glorified tonight, God. Meet us tonight, Lord. As we rejoice in your cross, we also seek to pick up our cross. So empower us. Meet us. Fill us, Lord, we pray. Do a work in us tonight, God. As we come tonight to just give ourselves wholly to you, fully to you. Even right now, Lord, as we just begin to lift up our voices, to lift up our hands, Lord, may we just symbolically lift up our hearts and present them to you tonight as a living sacrifice. Acceptable. As we take and place our confidence in the incredible, perfect, holy, satisfying sacrifice of your Son, our Savior. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you.